A couple of times last winter, Margaret and I spent a few hours in the city of Armagh. We walked along its lovely mall, a beautiful open green space surrounded by fine Georgian buildings, and in the distance, rising up above it, the tower of the ancient Church of Ireland Cathedral. How much we owe to the architects of a bygone age who planned a city like Armagh so beautifully. And how much we owe to at least some of the architects of today who are creating a fine modern city for us here in Belfast. Now, the city of Smyrna, or to give it its modern name, Izmir, was a well-planned city. It had been destroyed and rebuilt some 200 years before Christ. Like Ephesus, it was a seaport on the Aegean. Unlike Ephesus, and indeed any of the other cities mentioned in these seven letters, Izmir is still a city, and a beautiful city at that. It rises up from the harbour to Mount Pagus, a height of about 500 feet. Around the mount winds a famous street called the Street of Gold. It has been compared to a necklace on the statue of a goddess. Ancient Smyrna was very proud of its library, its stadium, the largest public theater in Asia Minor. The mount itself was covered with temples and other noble buildings. It was known as Smyrna's crown. All in all, it was one of the most beautiful cities of the ancient world. Like Ephesus, it was a center of trade and culture. But perhaps the most notable thing about it was its loyalty. Long before Rome had reached the zenith of its power, Smyrna had become Rome's ally. And all down the years, through thick and thin, she had stood by that bond. Imperial Rome had no better colony and no more loyal friend. Now, this same quality of loyalty was reflected in the church in Smyrna to which this letter was addressed. Interestingly, there is no other mention of this church in the whole of the New Testament. We don't know whether or not Paul visited here on one of his journeys through Asia Minor. All we know is what is written here. But how about this? In this letter, there is not one word of blame, not one. It's the only one of the seven about which that can be said. Not a single word of blame, but lots of praise for their courage 
and their faithfulness. Let's unpack it a little now. And first of all, the risen and ascended Christ commends the church at Smyrna for, faith, for being faithful in tribulation. Smyrna was especially famous for its temple to Caesar. The emperor Tiberius had declared himself to be a god, and every so often citizens were required to go to the temple and sprinkle a little incense on the fire that was burning before the bust of the emperor. And when they sprinkled the incense, they declared the words, Caesar is Lord. It was a simple gesture, a mere formality, an expression of loyalty to the state, a bit like a toast to the queen. No one thought anything about it. Certainly no one attached any religious importance to it. But Christians could not do it. For at their baptism, they had declared, Jesus is Lord. And they knew they could not serve two masters. As Jesus taught them, they were to be loyal to Caesar so far as the duties of citizenship were concerned. But worship they could not give. That was for Christ and Christ alone. In verse 10, we read, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Jesus doesn't promise that things are going to be easy for these faithful Christians. He mentions prison, he mentions suffering, he mentions even death. But through it all, he urges them to continue faithful. Listen. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. And that is what they did. A generation or so later, a time of severe persecution arose for the church. The saintly Polycarp was Bishop of Smyrna. On the advice of the congregation, he went into hiding, but someone betrayed him, and the old man was captured and taken on the long, long journey to Rome. Actually, they gave him every chance to escape, but he refused to do it. He even wrote letters to the various churches where he was going to pass, urging them not to interfere, not to deprive him of the glory of being a martyr for Jesus. At last, they came to Rome. They offered Polycarp a stark choice. 
be put to death or make a sacrifice to Caesar and curse Jesus. Polycarp uttered his famous reply, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? They threatened him with death by burning or death fighting the wild beasts. He replied, You threaten me with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched, for you do not know the fire that awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. And so Polycarp died, faithful under tribulation. In verse 11 we read, He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Across the world today are many Christians who face persecution for the sake of Jesus. We need to remember that. And we need to remember them and thank God for their faithfulness. How much easier things are for us. But it may not always be like this. Let us pray that Christ will not bring us to such a test and that if he should, we too may be faithful so that we may receive the crown of life. Faithful in tribulation, keep the persecuted church in your prayers. But secondly, Christ commends the Christians at Smyrna for being faithful in poverty. Most of the early Christians, in fact, were poor. Turkey is still a poor country as far as many of its ordinary citizens are concerned. The problem is that Smyrna was a rich city, and to be poor when others around you are very rich is a great trial to endure. Perhaps Christians had had their goods taken from them as part of the persecution they had to suffer. Perhaps it was simply that most of them were converted slaves. Whatever the reason, they had to live with the daily misery of constant poverty and desperate need. In one sense, persecution was easier. It was short and sharp. It called for boldness and desperate action. It had its moments of heroism. It had its stories to tell. But there is nothing glamorous or ennobling about poverty and especially 
watching the effects of poverty on your nearest and dearest. That knocks the heart out of the best of men and women. How easily then these Christians might have been tempted to conform for the sake of business, to make useful contacts. Smyrna was full of keeping up with the Joneses. How easily they might have given in just to climb the social ladder. But not so. These Christians were faithful even under the misery of being poor. And the risen Lord Jesus not only commends them, he adds these words, but you are rich. Christ judges a man's true wealth, not by what he has larded away, but by the man he is. Possessions are ours only for a few short years. But the man or woman who has been changed by Jesus owns treasure that will endure. So I ask this morning, what is our attitude to possessions? Some of us in church this morning are rich. Some of us are poor. Most of us have enough and perhaps a bit over to spare. But for so many people today, life centers on things. The inward, I think, is stuff. Maybe the present recession will do some good if it shifts our focus off stuff and on to giving thanks for what we have already got. It may indeed help us to remember the needs of others and the desperate plight of countless people throughout the world. It ought to teach us where to invest what we've got in the building of justice and peace and in the spread of the gospel of Christ throughout the world. So Christ commends their faithfulness in tribulation, their faithfulness in poverty. But thirdly, he commends their faithfulness under injustice. One special tribulation faced the church in Smyrna. In the Roman Empire, Jews had a privileged position. They were, they were what was called a religio licita, a licensed religion. But Christians did not have that status. They were not a licensed religion. And Jews hated Christians. They used all their contacts, all their influence to do them harm by gossip, by slander, by crafty plans. They actually brought Christians 
into tribulation and danger. Verse 9, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What a name for God's chosen people. What a sentence for Jesus to pronounce against his own kith and kin. How should we react when we are slandered and falsely accused? Let me be quite specific here and careful in how I say it. The last thing any true Christian should want or do is to think or speak or act against the Jews. Too often in the course of history, Christians have been guilty of anti-Semitism and have thought that by so doing, they were standing up for the Christian cause. Not so. We need to set our minds against such attitudes any time they raise their ugly head. And that same principle applies to other religions also. Across the world today, many Christians suffer persecution at the hands of followers of other faiths and increasingly at the hands of militant unbelievers. We see it in our newspapers. We've seen it happening in public life. There have been plenty of high-profile cases in recent years. It's no longer politically correct to be too open and specific about what we really believe even to wear a cross or a religious badge or to voice our clear Christian convictions can now and then get a Christian believer into a lot of trouble. And we need to stand out on principle against such things. But we also need to learn a lesson from this letter of Jesus. We are not to retaliate. We are not to give way to hatred. We are not to nurse a grudge. No. Instead, we are to be faithful even under injustice. That was Christ's word to this splendid congregation at Smyrna. It was a word of praise and also a word of challenge for the future and for the future of all Christ's churches. As the Lord of the church looks at us this morning, he knows us too and all about us. Can he commend us for being faithful? We may not be persecuted. We may not be especially poor. We may not be particularly oppressed. But all of us 
have our temptations, and we need the faithfulness to stand firm. And all of us have our opportunities, and we need the faithfulness to seize them for Christ and His glory. Let us pray this morning that faithfulness may be the mark of our personal lives as Christian believers and of the life of the church, this church, this congregation. For Christ has promised, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let us pray. A little prayer on the theme of faithfulness. God our Father, thank you for all those who have remained faithful to you in spite of temptation or poverty or persecution or scorn. In face of every adversity, keep us faithful that we may bear witness to your forgiveness and love, and at the last may win the victor's crown for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.